This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the web box podcast i'm matt shortly how will the historians of the future piece together what on earth is going on in downing street right now used to be that it was all done through sort of uh, psychic comments in the margins of cabinet papers. These days, it's all in WhatsApp and DMs and all of that. So uh, in our big thing today on the episode, we're going to take a look at whether WhatsApp is killing political history. We've got Sir Anthony Selden, who chairs uh, the National Archive uh, Trust uh, and one of the Times' own archivists to, uh, to pick through how physical bits of paper make it easier to piece together history. And uh, maybe maybe we'll never find out the truth of what went on last week with Owen Patterson and all of that because it all played out in DM. So that's our that big thing coming up on the episode. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Monday, it is Libby Rachie. It's Libby Purvis and Wait Sylvester. So, um, <laughs> there's a great uh, subject line in the red box email this morning from Patrick Maguire. Uh, we're going to need a bigger teacup after uh, George Eustace, the Environment Secretary, suggested at the weekend that all this sleaze business is all just a storm in a teacup. <laughs> uh, do you agree, Libby? Well, yes, uh, no, it's, it's not a storm in a teacup. It, it really does matter. It used to be said that the Tory scandals were always about sex and Labour scandals were always about money. And now we've got this uh, remarkable levelling up between the parties with <laughs> Labour managing sort of Vaz and Claudia Webb and so on. And the Tories ever sleazier about the money and the lobbying all the way from Cameron to Patterson and the dodgy peerages and so on. People do care. People do notice. And I think people certainly notice the political idiocy of the government's dealings over Patterson and then, then the U-turn and also about the, the donors getting peerages. And then, of course, the mind turns to Randox, you know, boosted by Patterson and the enormous deals it's done with government. It's really uncomfortable. It's not a storm in a teacup. It matters. We need to have, as Claudia Foge's rather good piece says today, you know, we need a higher quality of MPs, both morally and uh, intellectually, than we are getting at the moment. It's it's a worry. What do you think, uh, Rachel? Uh, just a storm in the teacup. We don't need to move on. It's all sorted. Well, more like a hurricane, I'd say, that's going to blow the teacup over and smash the 
slaughter as well. Um, I think it really, I totally agree with Libby, it really does matter. I think the one thing the voters care about more than absolutely anything is the sense that it's one rule for them, another rule for us. And if it's the politicians trying to change the rules to make things easier for themselves or their friends, then that's even worse. Uh, and all the um, most successful political campaigns recently, from Brexit to Boris Johnson's victory in 2019, and in fact Blair in 1997, were harnessing this anti-politics mood. It's the most powerful mood in politics, a voters' mm. mistrust of politicians. Um, and I think Boris Johnson is in a lot of danger about this. So he personally has always behaved and I think he believes that the rules don't apply to him so you know there was that school report wasn't there where one of his um, teachers said you know this boy thinks you know he doesn't need to do as everyone else does I'm paraphrasing but you know the rules don't apply to him basically and ever since you know whether that's breaching international rules or proroguing parliament um, he's behaved as if the normal rules of politics don't apply and in some ways that's been his greatest strength so he's managed to break through in all those red wall seats he's broken the rules of politics there in a good way for the conservative party but I think always the sort of greatest strength for leaders becomes their greatest weakness and that kind of bypassing the normal rules will in the end be his downfall sooner or later. It's just a question of when. Is that, uh, some some extent, sort of wishful thinking amongst those who don't really like Boris Johnson? That, um, given that... I mean, no-one would accuse him of necessarily having uh, stood for election as a sort of pretty straight kind of guy, to quote Tony Blair. Um, that's, <laughs> not, that's not what he promised. So um, does it... Does it matter less? Are, are people who really people who really dislike Boris Johnson really disliking him even more is not the same as more people disliking Boris Johnson? I think it's. Uh, I think the moment is going to come when the nation says to Boris Johnson, uh, like in Pride and Prejudice, "You have delighted us long enough. You know, we've actually had enough of this nonsense." I think one of his great great errors and great weaknesses was getting a cabinet full of Brexit yes-men, you know, getting his own people without actually looking around the party for the real quality and the real intelligence and the real integrity, which does exist in the Conservative ranks. Uh, but I think he, he's, he's stuffed, you know, stuffed the place with people who have to agree with him. And that is always a terrible mistake. You know, even Mrs Thatcher didn't do that. You know, she, she had people giving her trouble. And, uh, and, and that was, it was good for her regime. In fact, I mean, I'm saying that it might not be uh, having much impact. Actually, in the last few minutes, there's an Ipsos Mori poll uh, which has just come through. Uh, Labour are ahead by one point on wow. 36%, with the Conservatives having dropped four points to 35%. Uh, it's worth pointing out, you know, there was another poll over the weekend which had, I think it was an opinion poll, had the Tories only one point ahead after dropping. And in the uh, the YouGov poll for all the Times which we had on Friday, the Conservatives were down from six points ahead to just one uh, one point. So maybe it is having having uh, a, a bit of impact. Uh, I just remember sitting in focus groups before the election and the voters, it was sort of um, swing voters um, in, I think they were from a red wall seat, but it, they were certainly swing voters. And they were saying, you know, we don't particularly like or trust Boris Johnson. He's a bit like a monkey swinging through the trees, but, you know, he's entertaining. We'll tolerate him as soon as he does what, you know, is good yeah. for us. He's a sort of lovable rogue, but he's our lovable rogue. But as soon as he's not 
their lovable rogue, I think it'll evaporate quite quickly, that support, because it's a, mm. if it starts, you know, living standards start going in the wrong direction, people start feeling the pain, and meanwhile it looks like... Um, the Tories are, you know, snaps in the trough, then that's it's really, that's bad news for, for any Prime Minister, even Boris Johnson. And I suppose that's the thing. And actually, a part of this is also quite a big test of uh, Keir Starmer and his ability to sort of... Part of what we've seen, actually, in a lot of the shift in the polls has been a movement from Conservative to don't know rather than it necessarily, you know, it's the Tories undertaking the Labour Party rather than uh, the opposite. And I just wonder whether, going if you go back to the... Keir Starmer's uh, party conference speech uh, in Brighton. He said, uh, "Confidence is easy to comfort yourself that our opponents are bad people, but I don't think Boris Johnson is a bad man. I think mm. he's a trivial man. I think he's a showman. And, and na- now he's out saying this man's corrupt, um, which strikes me as quite a bad thing. Have they? St- is this sort of side of the Labour Party still struggling really to know what to do about Boris Johnson, Libby? I think, I think maybe." I mean, I, I, I rather agreed with Kirsten. I thought it was a splendid thing to say, you know, that your opponents are not necessarily bad people. But I think a trivial man, I think Boris Johnson simply doesn't notice stuff. I mean, OK, he's got a new baby and he's got a very complicated life and, and, and so on. But he simply, I think he kind of doesn't notice how bad things are and how bad things look. And he just thought, oh, Patterson, great chap, you know, great, great mate, great friend of mine, excellent man, excellent man. Stand by him, stand by him, everybody, you know, form a square around the Patterson. And um, I, I just don't think he thinks hard enough. And again, so you can still say, no, he's not bad. It's, you know, he fails to notice corruption. And there are a lot of people like that. I mean, we all fail to notice things, you know, or marketing things or things we buy, which don't really do much good to the world in general. Um, and I think Boris Johnson is like that. I think he's trivial and jolly. And that's why people liked him. But as I say, I think the nation will soon say, you have delighted us long enough. You know, let's have somebody (laughs) duller and more serious. Might even be Keir. You never know. We'll see how that, uh, we'll see that pans out. Um, Let's talk about your your column in the Times today, uh, Libby. Um, Which, um, it it, it was nice actually, because it just wasn't about stuff that was in the news. But basically you've you've been to see, but it also looks ahead to Remembrance Day, uh, which obviously uh, is happening this week. But you've been to see a new play. Which, which yes. pe- although I suppose maybe maybe there is read across the book to, to today's politics because this idea that, that people aren't just very very good or very very bad that actually human beings are quite complicated. Explain yeah. explain what your column's about. Well, I was I was fascinated by it because I've always sort of noted the uh, not always approved but noted the rather romantic legend of you know the the high born young men the young officers who as well as all the very very many working class boys went to World War One and. There's a sort of legend of courage and sportsmanship and tragedy, you know, the war uh, poets and so on. And Maurice Baring's line on Julian Grenfell, you know, hail the advent of each dangerous day, meet the last adventure with a song. And, you know, that, that's always been part of it. On one side, you have Sassoon and Wilfred Owen talking about the, the writing about the butchery of doomed youth and how terrible it is. But you've also got quite a lot of, ah, oh, the game, the red crashing game of a fight and you know, Grenfell's poem into battle. And so I was really interested in the fact that Hugh Salmon has dug up this extraordinary 
university life of theirs where they were worse than any Bullingdon Club stories we hear now. <laughs> they were just appalling. They hurled crockery down staircases. They bullied. They, they tortured animals. They, um, uh, they, they bullied the nonentities, chased them around. And there was one particular feud between a chap called Ray, who was a sort of earnest undergraduate who ran, was very religious and ran the local boys' club for the poor, and Billy Grenfell, who was totally vile to him. And they hated each other. This feud went on and on, and it followed university. But they both enrolled in the same restaurant, in the same regiment, rather, and they, they died together on the same day in 1915, having reconciled, having understood each other's value. And I was just thinking, actually, people do change. They do move. They do grow up. And it led me right back to what we've got going on at the moment, which is the absolute dislike of any idea of personal redemption. You know, if anyone's ever said a bad thing or tweeted a bad thing or been a bit of a racist, you must write them off. You know, must never give them another job. You know, you must curse their descendants and, you know, refuse their well-meant charitable funds. But people do change. People do move on. And just this little story of these young men between 1910 and 1915, sort of, it, 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 it touched me in the play. It, it's a very interesting play. You can stream it online now. Um, uh, it's called Into Battle. Um, so it just will be a different thing to think and write about in Remembrance Week. Absolutely. And, and Rachel, there is, as a society, we are sort of struggling with this, aren't we? That, that people who uh, have done well either either you know professionally or in society or whatever then suddenly find that something they said or did actually you know some time ago can wipe all of that out mm. i think that i really love the libby's idea of redemption and the importance of that and i was really interested this week james timpson who uh, his company employs a lot of former mm. prisoners he tweeted this week that they're finding it increasingly hard to find um recruits uh, who are former inmates because so many companies are now trying to do that, giving people a second chance. So on the one hand, you've got that sense of searching for practical redemption. But on the other hand, society seems to be becoming more and more unforgiving about things people say and values um, and indiscretions. And I think Libby's right. So long as people can prove that they've genuinely changed and learned, then there has to be a way of um, a, a form, a, you know, a route to redemption. But what goes on in all the, the cancelling and so on is this principle that if you never forgive, if you're someone who never forgives and never forgets, that's the least laborious way to make you feel really virtuous yourself. Um, and it's, it's just a very simple way to feel good about yourself is to point out how bad somebody else once was. And I, I think this is it's 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 an unchristian, it's an un in, inhumane way to live and think. And I think we need to think very carefully about it. It's a, it's a really fascinating, just really lovely piece to read as well, uh, Libby. Before I let you both go. Um, I was very taken by this story about uh, <laughs> things people bought in lockdown, which they now regret. Uh, either of you want to fess up? Well, you know how it is. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're there, you're really bored, and you think life will be better one day, so you buy an inflatable canoe on the internet. <laughs> um, a, a colleague of mine at the BBC actually bought a monocle, you know, a really proper monocle on the internet. Um, it, it has something to do what, with to drinking. Wear? It also... 
Uh, yes, it, 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 it had a lot, a lot to do with lockdown, and it has a lot to do with with uh, gin and tonic, I think, and a couple of beers of an evening. But I'm not surprised that there are all these ridiculous things that people bought in lockdown because it was just so easy. You know, all these poor van drivers dro- driving around up and down the country, uh, delivering things. You know, it's, it's like having a magic wish. You know, the magic fish you wish on in the fairy tale. Um, and of course, there's a lot of regret involved. Um, Rachel. Can you top a monocle or an inflatable f- No, I can't. But my most stupid thing was a carpet cleaner, which I decided I was going to be incredibly house proud. And of course, I never, ever use this stupid, heavy carpet cleaner that had to have loads of water and special, then special soap in it. It was such a ridiculous <laughs> waste of money. I immediately had to throw it out. <laughs> I think it just it does show the difference between me and Rachel. And she, she wanted a carpet cleaner, and I wanted an inflatable. Canoe. My aspiration is to be house proud, Libby. You probably already are. How no, have you ever been not. out? Have you ever been out in the canoe, Libby? Uh, no, I I sold it to some fitter people. <laughs> I hope you made a profit on it, if, if nothing else. Um, no, a loss. No, oh, no. oh dear, oh dear. Well, um, it's nice, <laughs> nice to speak to you anyway. I'll let you get back to scrolling through Amazon and seeing what you can buy today. Let me pose some Rachel Sylvester there. Of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is WhatsApp killing political history. you're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now is WhatsApp killing political history. And it's all just a little bit of history repeating. Yes, this, I'm really looking forward to this. Is WhatsApp killing political history? How will the historians of the future piece together what's going on in Boris Johnson's Downing Street if decisions are made in messaging apps and not cabinet memos? Exactly who politicians speak to and what they say. It was all being subject to debate in the House of Commons today, isn't it? Uh, with this debate on parliamentary standards in the Commons. Now, in the old days, government correspondence was much easier to, to track Cabinet minutes were kept. Prime Ministers wrote decisions in the margins of memos. Even the humble facts can be found in the National Archives. But with so-called government by WhatsApp, where ministers slide into each other's DMs, it's a horrible phrase, and are encouraged to automatically delete their messages, what will the historians of the future 
have in order to understand government today. But in a moment, we'll also find out how Times journalists of the past kept their notes from politicians to help today's historians. But first, let's hear from Sir Anthony Salden, who's written several biographies of Prime Ministers over the decades, picking through personal recollections and contemporary documents. He's also the chair of the National Archives Trust. I spoke to him after him whether there's a perfect way for historians to gather historical records. There is no perfect way. Um, there's a belief amongst certain kinds of medieval and serious deep historians that documents tell the whole truth. But that's marvellously naive because every document, every piece of evidence has its own history. Every piece of evidence was created for a reason. So uh, cabinet minutes, you might think, are um, the Holy Grail and prime ministerial uh, memos um, and prime ministerial diaries where they kept them. But uh, all of those are created for a reason and people are saying everything uh, when they know something's recorded, they will um, manicure what uh, they say. So it's they look at uh, in history in a certain light. So uh, there's no perfect solution. But what you want to do is to get as close to what the principal characters were themselves thinking at the time or were thinking if they were capable of thinking um, uh, straight. Uh, and, um, you know, and, that, and that's tricky because much isn't recorded now um, because of the growth of social media technology. Clearly, in those ages where people were writing uh, letters, letters to ambassadors, Elizabeth I, Queen Victoria, uh, writing uh, long uh, memos, long letters, Prime Ministers, Gladstone, uh, writing a, a lot, Neville Chamberlain. Um, you know, it's different now um, to Prime Ministers who don't write and some, it's even rumoured, uh, don't read um, either uh, what is written and where the speed of decision-making has accelerated and undoubtedly, um, but also uh, the fact that less and less is recorded. So it's difficult. Peter Hennessy and I set up a body called the Institute for Contemporary British History over 30 years ago, it's now at King's College London, um, to try and compensate for what we saw then as a decline in documentation. Uh, there was a famous letter written by a permanent undersecretary at the Foreign Office saying that historians of the future, if they think, uh, this is a letter to the Times, no less, uh, Lord Greenhill, if historians of the future think that they're going to be able to understand what's happened from the documents, they are uh, totally in the wrong place. So even back then, it was tricky. Uh, but now, uh, Matt, the key thing is to get inside the minds of those people who are observing objectively at the centre, dispassionate people like Dominic Cummings, um, <laughs> uh, um, watching uh, what's happening and who are able to reconstruct uh, the sequence of events. That's often tricky. Uh, and the way in which um, they unfolded and the motivations of the key players, that even the key players themselves 
might not be aware of why they are doing things. So uh, I've always put great stress on the recall of the principal private secretaries, the private office, civil servants, often cleverer, uh, more objective, um, uh, better memories uh, than special advisors and politicians. And so I suppose that the p- part of the reason why we were sort of uh, looking at this is, I mean, even over the weekend, we've seen, I mean, every every weekend, the Saturday papers, the Sunday papers are full of big reads of who said what and uh, who thought this and whose idea was it to put down that motion and then whose idea was it to pull the plug, whatever it might be. Um, and I suppose in the past... 20, 30, 40 years ago, you would have at some point, covering those events, you'd be able to get hold of bits of paper, notes, cabinet documents that were shuffled about and yes or no, or this is a terrible idea, why are we doing this, might be written in the margin. And these days, it's all pinged around in WhatsApp messages or Twitter DMs or whatever it might be. And so the historians of the future, for for example, trying to piece together exactly whose idea was it to try and let Owen Patterson off the hook, might struggle to ever properly get to the bottom of that. Because once you're relying on individuals' uh, recollections of it, uh, because it was a disaster, no one's going to necessarily fess up. Well, that's that's a, a new one in history. Uh, 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 the leader's not fessing up. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, it is more difficult than that. Uh, and yet... Um, you can still get round that. Uh, people like Tim Shipman get close uh, every Saturday and Sunday to what's happened, but um, you pay a price because uh, Number 10 are only telling you what was happening, um, knowing that you will write it up in a certain way, this is obviously yeah. <laughs> very obvious what I'm saying, um, and knowing that if, you, if and the writer, whoever it is, knows that if they don't write it up in a way that doesn't displease number 10 or other sources too much, then there's no point in them going back next week. So it's, uh, it's a grubby uh, trade-off uh, business in the shadows and smokes and smoke and mirrors uh, in terms of getting the information. So I think they're getting pretty close and historians of the future will certainly want to look at what the top insight teams are writing and do. And I do. Um, The further you get away from the events, the more open people are about the true reasons and a wider circle, including civil servants, will talk to you without uh, motives of wanting to get their own story across because it's much less Uh, salient but equally the further you get away from the event in some ways you get a better perspective in other ways people might be uh forgetting key details (laughs) and just funny um uh, anthony selton you're the you're the chair of the national archives trust is there a way that would the national archives like to be in a position where texts and uh, whatsapps and private emails were submitted to the national archive so that we're in the same way we discover the thinking and the arguments that were going on in Margaret Thatcher's cabinet or uh, Ted Heath's cabinet or whatever it might be, that, that, that we might have some of that in the future. Is that something that you would like like to see happen? WhatsApp submitted to the sort of National Archive so historians of the future can go and, go and pick over them? I would, and the National Archives are an unrivaled source anywhere internationally for the richness and depth of the quality of documentation. 
and to um, record fully as we move into this much more ephemeral age of, of speed and um, non-writing uh, down on paper and less reflective uh, passages, it would clearly be good to, to record. I mean, they're still written, even if they're typed onto a phone or spoken into a phone, it would be good to get those transcripts. Obviously, prime ministerial conversations are recorded usually, but not always by civil servants. So yes, Matt, it would be good to get those. But can I just add a coda on that? That people with WhatsApp would only be giving the National Archives their uh, that their trains chains of, e of emails, WhatsApps, and social media messages for a reason, <laughs> um, and, and and one should therefore go out of one's way not to want to have the WhatsApp chains from those people who want to offer them. Yeah, the, to one, us the ones that have been offered. That was Anthony Selton, uh, who is of course in his stories. We wrote books about Theresa May and David Cameron and. Uh, Boris Johnson and Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. So he's, he's been around this block many times before. Uh, he's also chair of the National Archives Trust talking to us about the uh, the struggle with um, everything going uh, electric and uh, what happens if uh, history's been played out in WhatsApp. But now let's speak to Nick Mays, an archivist here at News UK, which holds uh, records on the Times and Sunday Times. I'm very excited that you've brought some things in uh, which give us some insight into the history of political reporting at the time. It's like the other side of the equation. It's not what politicians are doing, but it's what journalists have, have been doing. Yes, um, we have a limited amount of material which has survived the, uh, the ravages of history and uh, people's attempts to keep and not keep things. And uh, yes, they do reflect the interaction, the processes by which uh, Times reporters worked and their interaction with the politicians. So these days, we just fire off a WhatsApp to, to cabinet ministers or whatever it might be. Talk us through what you've got. This is, this is proper... I feel like this is sort of turned into an um, uh, antiques road or something. What have you got in front of you? Um, I've got uh, notebooks, documents. Um, I mean, the basic thing to sort of start by saying, really, is that um, the principal role of Times parliamentary reporters in the 19th and early 20th century... Um, was much more to actually record what was said in Parliament than to be worrying about um, things outside the chambers. And so that's the, that's the distinction between a gallery reporter and a lobby reporter. Certainly. In the olden days, gallery reporters were the kings and the lobby reporters were a bit of a... They were the sort of the slightly down-market gossip-mongers. Yes, um, the, the Times had a view of reporting what was had been said, not what was about to be said, so there wasn't kite-flying in the Times and those days which made life easier i suppose um what they were keen to do and the times reported at great length verbatim whole debates um on a variety of subjects so that was a very important part of the times communication of parliament um out to the people so uh, so what have we got there so then? what have we got here we i mean th this is a rare survival um this is uh, the very first uh, reporter's notebook um, of a gentleman this called... Is, I mean, it's a very posh notebook. It's proper leather-bound. Um, uh, so who's this? Miss uh, Foster's... T T Thomas Campbell Foster. T.C. Foster's first parliamentary reporting book. The notes being taken, the House of uh, uh, Lords and Commons on the engagement of parliamentary... as engagement of parliamentary reporter... Uh, to the London Times, Sunday, March the 11th, 1839. Wow, this is proper... I feel like I should be wearing white gloves or something. Now. <laughs> oh, we don't need to do that. Now, uh, what sort of... Before, this is a nerdy question. What sort of shorthands are you using in this? I'm not going to be able to read this, am I? Uh, probably not. Um, it's actually written in Gurneys, 
which is... Oh, I've um, never even heard of that one. I know which is pre-Pittman. Pre-Pittman. So I, yeah. I learned T-Line. Um, I mean, actually, Foster was an interesting character. Before he arrived at the Times, he produced um, a book on, um, on shorthand. So he was obviously something of an expert in this. But this is literally his, um, his notes of what was being said in various debates. And the parliamentary reporters sat in, in the galleries and uh, in shift taking notes. And then that would be produced into the verbatim. Almost, almost verbatim. Yeah, exactly. Blimey, oh, right. there's an awful. It's not even lines. It, I mean, it's very, very nice shorthand. Yeah. But then, what does that? What does that tell us then about the process of uh, parliamentary reporting and sort of the political history of the time? I think. I mean, the Times and other newspapers were the key medium. Yeah. For reporting Parliament, and that goes back um, even earlier to when. The, Reporters couldn't really get access to Parliament very all the time. Um, after the development of the press gallery, you've got Parliament. Then you know they they recognise that you have to do this and you have to report, and the constituents have a right to know what their members what, were saying. What, what they go, what, and there's no television, there's no to. social media, or any other means of communication, no radio or anything else. And then this leads to some interactions between reporters and politicians, which yes. is the, sort of the, the WhatsApp of its day. Well, th this is where it leads on. The, the notebooks are just recording what was happening, yeah. but obviously they need to supplement. And the easiest way to supplement is to ask the politician who's made a speech to give you um, copies of their notes um, or the verbatim speeches they've written it out or whatever. So um, this was obviously going on at a regular enough basis that we start to get documents like this. Let's look at this one. So, this is... Um, uh, this, uh, we actually produced pro forma printed letters um, which the reporters could hand, um, could hand over. Um, so this was, in fact, well, uh, last week on the show, we were talking to someone from Hansard, who they, they still basically do this, when they're keeping mm. uh, notes of... So if somebody, a uh, politician, mentions a, a constituent or a you know, tourist attraction, whatever it might be, they send a note down... Uh, to get it, um, the, the exact details, and so this is this is Times journalist doing the same thing. So th th this is this is um, John Tyus's own um, pro forma because his name appears at the top of the. Oh, he's got his own. Look, there we are, Mr. Tyus of the Times. So each of the reporters yeah. would have had their own paper like this, and all they had to put in was the name of the person they're addressing, which of the galleries of the two houses they were um, in, in, writing from, and on which night. And then they would ask uh, for what copy of the... So who was this one sent to? Um, that one was particularly was sent to Palmerston. Oh, wow. And uh, Palmerston, as you can see, has replied um, on the same piece of paper um, to say, unfortunately, that he's prom already promised his notes um, to the Chronicle. <laughs> <laughs> because there's only one copy. There's not a press release which could be emailed around. No, nope, I'm afraid not. Um, so on that particular occasion, we sort of lost out. But that's an interaction. That interaction now would happen in a text, and and the Times archive would never have it. I said we've probably no. got for what time for one one more thing, Nick. Well, I was going to say for the, the, this is the. Um, well, I was going to say one more. This is the other alternative, which is um, Gladstone <gasps> um, forwarding his um, his notes and figures from a speech on the on the sugar duties in uh, eighteen forty two. So, Mr. Mr. Reporter of the Times. Mr... No, what's that, the, the name on this one? It's been addressed that, that's just Mr Reporter it of the Times. It is just Mr Reporter of the Times. So yep. this is signed by Gladstone? Yes. Wow. Oh, this is exciting. I feel like I'm holding 
Um, uh, I can't. I can't read any of it. Uh, <laughs> I have to say. Um, uh, da, 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 Present, the figures stated in his speech. He'll be yep. much obliged if he's willing. Yeah. Um, and then he signed it and sent it back. And that's all again to try and um, uh, make sure the reporting of the House of Commons was was accurate. So how old's this piece of paper? That one's eighteen forty-two. <gasps> I'm going to give it back to you so I, don't, <laughs> so I don't lose it. So how much do you get today? I probably know the answer to this because I've been at the Times for five years and I'm not sure I've ever given you anything. Um, uh, how much today of the work of Times political journalists do you get into the, the archive? Very little. And I think probably because most of the communication now is electronic. And at the moment we are still working on how to capture all the communication. Uh, it's a vast project in this company. And what about what do you have to do in terms of protecting sources as well? Because obviously sometimes if I've written a story for the paper which quotes three cabinet sources, at least for now, uh, I don't want that. You know, I should never say who my sources are. It's possible that sometimes politicians occasionally have a habit of revealing that they were someone's source later on in the memoirs and that sort of thing. But how do you capture the work of journalists without giving away somebody's sources? Uh, The principal process for us is that we don't open any of those records up for about 30 years at the okay. moment. So that we're running on the old National Archives yeah, yeah, closure. So and that gives us a degree of protection. We also just have the process of deciding anyway whether we feel we want to do that or not. Um, we are a private archive, not a public archive, so we have greater latitude if you we wish say, to. Well, we're happy to do that one out, but not that one. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I do know that I've ever heard of going in the archive while I've been it was Henry Zeffman's wall chart. That is that is part of it. <laughs> so Henry Zeffman, uh, listeners will know, chief political co- uh, correspondent of the Times, um, tried to get his head around how Brexit was going to pan out in the coming various stages of votes and did this incredible sort of flow chart. It was a flow chart, not a war chart. Flow chart. And I was there when he did it and he sketched it all out literally on the back of an envelope and that envelope is now in the archive. Yep, that was, uh, that, that was a dis- distinct case where we saw the, uh, the item in the paper yeah. and contacted Henry directly and said... When you finished with that, we'd love to have it. And historians of the future will be able to go back and have a look at it and realise that I don't think of all the options that Henry came up with from memory. I don't think the thing that actually ended up happening was in any of his uh, in any of his options. But it was a very important thing at the time. Yeah, uh, Nick, it's lovely to see you. I think uh, we should get you back and we'll do some more. I, how exciting just to have those those things. We'll get you back. And we'll do some more picking through the archives. Thank you very much, uh, Matt. Nick, Nick Mays, there, uh, archivist here at News UK, which holds all the records of the Times and Centre. Little piece of paper there signed by Gladstone right in front of me. That's really exciting. Uh, but what does all this mean then um, for uh, how Westminster Whitehall is working right now? Labour MP Chris Evans is chair of the all-party parliamentary group on history and archives. Oh, hi, Chris. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm very I've good. I've got to say, having listened to Nick, he's got to have a show of his own. That was fantastic. Yeah. I want to hear from more from Nick. That well, was brilliant. All right, don't be doing me out of a job. But yes, I agree. We'll definitely get Nick <laughs> Sorry, back. Sorry, we've got from the wrong foot now. We'll, get, we'll definitely get Nick back. <laughs> and Catherine Hedden Haddon is a senior fellow of the Institute for Government. Hi, Catherine. Hiya. Um, so, Catherine, from your perspective, from the Institute for Government, which likes to focus on you know, the correct working <laughs> of, of, of government and Whitehall and so on, what would what would be the best way of ensuring that you know politicians are creatures of their time of the twenty first century, and all of that? How can we ensure that government is working properly, uh, but also we are capturing this stuff for the future, so that you know when I'm doing this show on Times Radio in a hundred years' time, I'll be able to sift through Boris Johnson's WhatsApps or whatever it might be. 
Well, I mean, the National Archives does have the ability to keep WhatsApps. It can, you know, turn them into plain text and record them that way. And I think they've been working on, on different ways to record all of that. Uh, it slightly depends what the app is that they're using. But the thing is, it's about how they're using it. Because when it comes to decisions that government departments are taking, you know, you talked about uh, the sort of the letters they might write. There's also, you know, various minutes of meetings. Sometimes those can be quite dry. There's a lot that private office, so the civil servants can do to make sure that any discussion that's had in WhatsApp actually gets into some kind of official re record and is put down. The difficulty is the kind of stuff you were just talking about. It's, it's the stuff around the margin. So, I mean, MPs have long had sort of private conversations in the tea rooms at Westminster, you know, chatting to each other in the corridors outside the cabinet office. Um, even going for dinner, you can remember the Pizza Club, which was the Brexiteer cabinet members under Theresa May. They used to meet of an evening and talk <laughs> tactics. We don't have any records of that. So in a sense, WhatsApp, and we've seen this with Dominic Cummings, it does give us a chance because it's kind of like uh, politicians basically taking notes as they go. So if they keep them, they can go into their memoirs. You know, they can even release them into sort of personal archives. There is a chance that we historians will get to find out this stuff simply because they use their thumbs rather than uh, just talking to each other, which doesn't get recorded. That's interesting. You think that actually the, the WhatsAppification of politics might mean there's, there's a bit more stuff now exists. And I suppose that's the thing that you, you, so many conversations now have uh, happen uh, electronically rather than in person. Um, Chris, um, first of all, I'm very excited even about the existence of the all-party parliamentary group on history and archives. That sounds more fun than a lot of the APPGs that I've heard of. What's your yeah. What's your take on 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 this and the what the the, the politicians, think... the, the historians of the future, try to get a grip on what's happening in politics right now? I mean, I mean, you could look at this to, uh, one of two ways. You can either go down the Sir Anthony Southern road there, where he is worried about these WhatsApp groups and people being excluded from them, et cetera, et cetera. Or you can look at it another way and say, for the first time ever, you've got so much information available to you based on WhatsApp, emails like you've never had before. Um, I doubt it when George Brown was, when Harold Wilson was deciding to get rid of George Brown in the 19, 1960s, he was writing notes to people saying, this, this is what I think of George Brown. Now you know what politicians think of each other. <laughs> I think it's more, more fascinating than ever before. And history and life is all about millions of decisions taken every day by all sorts of people. But as Anthony Selden said, we need to know where they took those decisions. And once we got the WhatsApp, once we got the email as well, then we will know what they were thinking they were making those decisions. And I think it's, a, it's absolutely a really exciting time to be a historian at the moment. But I would say the problem, as Nick uh, uh, touched upon there, there is so much information. How do you decimate that as well? And I also think in terms of legislation, legislation and parliament, because the way parliament is, it's so slow and technology moves so fast in terms of, you know, 20 years ago, it was all Friends Reunited. Now it's uh, it's uh, Facebook and Snapchat and TikTok. And who's to say in 10 years' time, they would be obviously like Friends United is Reunited was once. So I really think <laughs> this is, number one, a really exciting time for stories. The first time ever, you can actually find out what people are thinking about each other in the in the actual real time as well. I suppose the question is, though, Chris, would you how happy would you be about having your WhatsApp opened up? Or, or how many years? Nick was talking about 30 years to sort of delay to open up times archives what sort of delay would you want on your your whatsapps about what? keir starmer being made well, public there's nothing there's nothing interesting on my whatsapp <laughs> want to see anyone. <laughs> if they want to see my discussions about football with various friends then fine but i don't think they have much interest in that you know and what about <laughs> but what, i think i what... think in terms of in terms of the, the time limit the time limit's 30 years at the moment i can't see i can't see any need to change that at the moment i think 
And what about um, MP WhatsApp groups? I mean, we hear a lot about them, the Conservative Party. There seem to be, you know, the, the Northern MPs, the old MPs, the rural MPs, oh. the, the new ones, uh, um, you know, in various groups. Uh, my favourite uh, fact being that they were calling themselves the 109, I think, one of the groups. Uh, but, although there were more than 109 new Tory MPs. Uh, and, but then not all of them were allowed into it. That's what goes on in the Conservative one. Are there similar Labour groups, do you think, <laughs> that, that in the past you've had to book a meeting room and that sort of thing? Not that there's anything that's necessarily controversial about that, but but just the sort of live, ongoing record of the conversations happening yeah. between Labour MPs. Yes, that is, you know, politics is a, is a social business and people are going to speak to each other anyway. But I mean, some of the titles of these WhatsApp groups, I think they stay up all night thinking about the titles, to be honest. But, What's uh, the best no, one that you're in or the worst one? Well, the worst one I was in was the birthday club, which was formed on somebody's birthday. And <laughs> there's one, there's another one, a uh, football chat one as well, that, that I like that one an awful lot, actually. That's, uh, that's quite a good one. <laughs> and Catherine, um, what, do, do you think that basically this ship has sailed? Or is, is there a point, I mean, I suppose the trouble is, to, in order for there to be a big change, a new prime minister would have to offer to open up more than they than they do normally. Um, I think in America, they're much better at basically recording almost everything that passes through the the, prime, uh, the president's office and that sort of thing. Is there ever a time, do you think, where we might have that sort of situation here in the UK? Yeah, I'm not sure whether the current prime minister would want to have a sort of recording set up in his own um, office as the, the US president does to sort of record everything that's discussed in that room. But that would be one way to go. Um, I think at the moment, what's, you know, you've got to differentiate between how much more of the colour of politics we're going to get from, um, you know, future people keeping all their WhatsApps and being able to tell you what, what they said to whom at what time. <laughs> and then the decision making that goes on in government at the moment, which I think is the bigger worry. You know, this isn't a new issue. We talk about the pile all the time, which is the sort of mass of electronic information since the sort of early 2000s. And it's going to be a huge amount of material for, for historians to weed their way through. The issue at the moment and where we've got concern is just whether or not, as we saw with the Dominic Cummings emails, you've got decisions happening on WhatsApp. That's when it becomes very difficult because that's actually bad for government if not the right people were in that group or you then don't know what the action points are and, or a minister just thinks that a decision has been taken and it actually hasn't. So there's lots of sort of problems that the government should have. The biggest difficulty as well is that at the moment a lot of our archiving is very dependent on good behaviour by people wanting to keep a record of what they did, what they said to whom and how a decision was actually made and you need that there because otherwise it's very easy for them to sort of bypass the current rules and uh, you know make a decision in a method that doesn't mean that we have a decent record for it. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.